Recovery Elevator, episode 345. And I feel like there's always people that were having more of a problem than I was. And so it was really hard for me to tell when it kind of became an issue. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we've got Stacy Joe. I love that name. She's 34 years old. She's from Oregon, and she took her last drink on March 6th, 2020. For some reason, when I read the name Stacy Joe, I thought about Casey and JoJo. You guys remember that group? That song, uh, ah, what is it? All My Life. I'm pretty sure it's All My Life. Okay, let's move forward. Hey, I've got an idea, listeners, and I want to gauge interest before creating it. It would be an alcohol-free ukulele 101 course. I'm thinking we'd meet once per week for 8 to 10 weeks. The ukulele is a beautiful instrument that you can learn pretty quick. So in this course, you'll learn how to play the ukulele, how to tune it, the chords, some scales, and some basic songs. We'll also be connecting with others who are quitting drinking, and you may find yourself learning an A chord and sharing your rock bottom moment in the same session. So if you'd seriously be interested in this course, email info at recoveryelevator.com and let us know. And if there's enough interest, I'll put this course together. Earlier this week, China banned gamers under 18 from playing online video games on school days and will only give them a three-hour limit on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays in public holidays. Gamers will have to officially register with gaming companies so they can monitor them. So playtime's over, kids. And the reason why they are doing this is because the online games have been shown to be quite addictive. In fact, South Korea opened up the first online gaming rehab facility a couple years back and many countries have followed suit. It turns out, online gaming, where you're in a fantasy world and all your problems in the real world go away, can be quite addictive. Does this sound familiar, listeners? Well, the same thing happened to me when I drank alcohol. Thankfully, I never got tuned up while playing Call of Duty. I imagine that would have been quite dangerous for me. Okay, guys, and before we head into our topic today, let's hear from Cafe RE. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find authentic connection, love, and encouragement. With supportive and educational chats hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together, and with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $24 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online chats, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get the chance to be assigned an accountability partner if you'd like. 10% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. Today we're going to cover the second half of Rich Roll's YouTube interview she did with Stanford psychiatrist Dr. Anna Lemke, who's also the author of Dopamine Nation. If you'd like to see this video, the link is in the show notes. Thank you, Hillary. 
Dr. Lemke talks about how everyone is vulnerable to addiction, especially with screens. Then Rich Roll pipes in and says, we are essentially outgunned and outmatched. Our dopamine systems are going up against big tech and big data. Millions, perhaps billions have been spent to find out how to get your attention, your endless attention at that. And here's where it gets even scarier, listeners. It's big alcohol is working with big data and big tech. So that's quite the match for little Pablo. So I'm including this snippet to give you guys comfort. I know that sounds a bit strange, but what I'm getting at is almost everyone has some sort of minor to major to a catastrophic addiction. And I think collectively, everyone would benefit from a dopamine fast, as Dr. Lemke recommends in her book, Dopamine Nation. I'm actually halfway through listening to it, and I'm enjoying it. I would recommend it. Dr. Lemke talks about how it's a known fact that when we are in our addiction, we can't accurately see the consequences or what's taking place. So with abstinence, we can look back and say, oh my. So listeners, there was a time when I was drinking a one liter box of wine and two cans of beer before breakfast. And this happened for quite some time. And let me tell you how I drank it. I would walk across the street at 6 a.m. when the corner store opened and picked up a box of wine and two cans of beer. I would empty the beers in a glass and microwave them so I could drink it faster. While the beer was warming, I would chug the wine out of the box. After trial and error, I was able to make this whole process happen in under five minutes. Quite remarkable if you ask me. I'd then go back to bed and sleep till around 2 p.m. So this is when I owned a bar in Spain from ages 24 to 27. And if your kid ever comes home and says, hey mom, dad, I wanna buy a bar in Spain, well, send them my way. Actually, you know, my parents were so supportive of me and everything I did, whoever wanted to do. And they've also been my biggest supporters on this AF journey. How cool is that? In fact, they stopped by the Colorado Cafe RE camping meetup we had this past June up in the Rockies for about an hour or so. I was thrilled to introduce them to some of my AF heroes, like Scott Fife from episode 258. And let me tie in the point of this section. When we remove alcohol, we can look back and say, hmm, yeah, a box of wine and two beers before 6.05 a.m. on a Wednesday morning isn't normal drinking. And to tell you the truth, listeners, at that time, I kid you not, I couldn't see it. I like what Dr. Lemke says about doctors who struggle with addiction, and this mirrors what I've seen. The shame is much more pronounced in this group. Being smart or highly educated doesn't make you immune to addiction. In fact, it might even backfire because you think you know everything. In fact, you've studied it. You aced a multiple choice test on the subject. You think you'll know when you cross the line because you wrote an essay about it. She talks about how many psychiatrists struggle with addiction, and I bet they do. I can only imagine the pressure they must feel for themselves to have it all figured out. She talks about how she doesn't necessarily like the disclosures in her office, or how she isn't supposed to open up and be vulnerable with her patients about her own struggles, which she has found helps build rapport between her patients and creates a deeper bond. Then Dr. Lemke talks about addiction by the numbers. She says more than half the world's deaths under the age of 50 are attributable to addiction. Holy smokes. And rates of alcoholism have gone up 50% for those aged 65 and up from the late 90s to the 2020s. And in fact, this has gone up 80% in women. Wow. So traditionally, the rates for alcoholics were 5 to 1 for men to women. But with millennials, it's now 1 to 1. There are more burdens on women now than ever. They then chat a bit about the opioid crisis. 
which anywhere from 2 to 15 million Americans are addicted. There's a wide range there because it's hard to survey homeless populations. Dr. Lemke thinks it's much closer to 15 million. Opioid overdoses were steadily rising until 2018, where it hit a plateau, and that's good news. And then insert a pandemic and the overdoses skyrocketed again. She talks a little bit about how we got here with the opioid pandemic. She talks about a story when she first started practicing medicine in the early 2000s, where she began to educate doctors on addiction regarding opiates. In particular, with one doctor, her patient was seeing 10 other doctors a month getting Vicodin scripts. And then she wondered why the same doctor was continuing to prescribe these addictive pills. After some research, she found that Big Pharma had essentially infiltrated every part of medicine and had created a system of incentives and had so much influence that doctors would find themselves out of a job or gaslit if they didn't prescribe these addictive opiates. So that there is some level 10 bullshit. One regulation she found was that if a doctor didn't treat someone with opiates who reported to have a certain level of pain, then it would open up the doctor to a potential lawsuit against the doctor. Again, that's some more level 10 bullshit. One thing with opiates and pain, if you take them daily for long term, your pain actually gets worse. There are studies as well showing that opiates actually slow down the healing process. Previously, Big Pharma told a tale that less than 1% would become addicted. Fast forward to the truth and one quarter will develop a problem with these pills and 10% will become seriously addicted. 80% of people who use heroin now say their first exposure to opiates were prescribed pills. The good news is there is now a $26 billion settlement against Big Pharma and the opiate crisis. So I'm hesitant to use statements like this because shaming never works. But Big Pharma, you should be absolutely ashamed. They talk about the warning signs of someone who struggles with an addiction and how you can detect it in a loved one. Dr. Lemke talks about the double life. She says that basing it off functionality isn't a good thing. I found that interesting and I wanted to include that. I love her line where she says that us human beings in 2021 are basically like cacti in the rainforest. We are finding ourselves needing more and more to feel pleasure and less and less to feel pain. She talks about how those shunned for their addictions are going to be the ones who show us how to navigate this. Ah, I fully believe this. In fact, you've heard me say on this podcast that I feel it's this current cohort of people quitting drinking who will show the way for the rest of society in the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. I feel everyone eventually on this planet will have some sort of serious addiction in their lives. The reason for this is the dopamine system is wired for scarcity, and this worked great for human beings for the past 150,000 years. However, it's backfiring big time when I can get 13 street tacos and a milkshake delivered to my door before this episode is even over. So Dr. Lemke recommends a 30-day dopamine fast. But a huge warning to those withdrawing from alcohol and benzos. Please don't do that without medical supervision. And then how do you do the 30-day dopamine fast? Well, we've got 345 episodes on the how part of that. But the trick, the skinny of it is to go into the pain. Head into the storm, episode 341. Oh yeah, and don't forget to forgive yourself. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I know I personally learned a lot from Rich Roll and Dr. Lemke. So listeners, next week, you've got Odette doing the intro and Chris is doing the interview. Then the following week, 
I'm going to cover if it's possible to heal in the same environment you became sick. And before we hear from Odette and Stacy Joe, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking, such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. Learn more about these products at exactnature.com. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use the code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at checkout. And thank you, Exact Nature, for being our newest proud sponsor. Thank you, Paul, for that intro. And everyone, please help me welcome Stacy Joe to the Recovery Elevator podcast. Stacy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. We are recording on a Friday. I've had a busy, busy week. So I'm really happy that I'm wrapping up hearing another story. And I'm really happy it's with you. So thank you. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Can we get right into it, Stacy? Can you let us know when the last time you had a drink was? Yes, I am just a couple of days away from a year and a half. So March 6th is my sobriety date of 2020. I feel like that was the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Did you at any point know when you took the decision and that was your last drink that you were about to enter a really scary phase? No, and actually, I think the pandemic was like my secret weapon, actually. I think it was just what I needed to actually get some footing. Um, I was a restaurant manager at the time. So my entire job was to deal alcohol, essentially. And so it was really, really hard to like get out of that. My entire social circle was wrapped up in it. And I had been trying to quit for years and just been stuck in like the three to seven to 10 day cycle that you hear people talk about often. But yeah, when the pandemic shut down, it stopped my job and it also shut down my entire social life. And so I kind of just got to like come home and like be in a little cocoon and like figure out my next steps. A hundred percent. Yeah. Getting rid of all those things that normally are really hard to deal with on a routine that had to definitely help. And I mean, it worked in your favor and I know that's the case for many people. So congrats. Cause it was, it was a cocoon, but also there was a lot of stressors and a lot of unknown. And I know that's a reason why a lot of people were unable to stack days because there was a lot of fear around that time. So I'm just really happy that you found the strength in you and that you were able to build some momentum. And can you give listeners a little background on yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? I know you were a restaurant manager. Are you still doing that? And what do you like to do for fun? Yes. So I live in uh, Eugene, Oregon, in the Willamette Valley. It's so beautiful here. We get year-round vegetable growing weather. And I grew up in a ski resort in Colorado. So spring was kind of this mysterious thing that I didn't really understand. So when I landed in Oregon, um, I couldn't be happier, really, as far as that goes. I live here with my partner of 15 years. Uh, We have a dog named Goat, who's the love of our lives. My primary hobby is anything to do with yarn. I crochet and knit, spin. Um, I have a loom that I don't know how to use yet, but it's on my list of things to, to accomplish. I worked in restaurants for 20 years, doing everything, front of house, back of house, bartending, catering, carts, diners, fine dining all the way through until the pandemic happened. And then I took a big break 
And I did work at a daycare for a while um, and some other stuff. But I recently was just hired at the University of Oregon. So I'm doing food stuff again, but I get, but I'm a state employee. So I get like a pension and benefits. So I can't believe that there's this avenue to use all the restaurant skills, but get all the grown up office benefits. So that's pretty exciting. And that just started this week. So I'm kind of just like re going back into restaurant style work after a pretty big break. That's amazing. You know, you and I share that background. I went to school for restaurant management and I didn't know what else I could do. You know, there was a point where I didn't want to do it anymore. And it's hard to see where else that skill set can fit. And I'm really glad for this change. And I'm really glad it's working in your favor. That's awesome news. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think my favorite part is I get to have access to the classes at the university. Mm -hmm. I can take them. uh, I'm pretty sure I can audit them. And then I don't even have to worry about grades. And we just like go take a photography class or just whatever is interesting. And the university campus is so beautiful. It's kind of funny to me that it's been an option this whole time, just like right there, right in front of me. You can see it, you can use it, and you are sober for it. So you also have the time for it and the energy. So that's awesome. Good for you. And Stacy Joe, can you give listeners some background on your history with drinking? Can you let us know when you started your relationship with alcohol? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving you? And what got you on the path of quitting? Yeah, so um, I don't feel like I really drank too much in high school. It was definitely around my family were drinkers. But, you know, it always seemed kind of normal, never really seemed like a big deal within that family dynamic. When I was about 17, I started dating an older guy and we eventually moved out to Oregon. And I feel like alcohol was just always kind of there, but not really a big deal. Like I had a fake ID, but I hated using it because I was so scared that I was going to get busted. I was in the city that I didn't know. I was like, where would I run to? Like, it was, it was terrifying to me. So I didn't really enjoy using it at all. But then by the time I think I was 20, we broke up and I had had like a really early miscarriage, but it swung me so far, far in the other direction that that's when I kind of started using it as a coping mechanism. And so I think that's kind of when it switched. And around that time was when my service industry career started to solidify And so it was super normalized also. So it was really hard to see the points where was I using it for fun or was I using it for coping? You know what I mean? And then also it's like a currency in the service industry, especially if you're working in the back of house as a female, like being able to drink at the same capacity and rate as your fellow people, especially when you're younger and kind of coming into it. I feel like that's something part of the culture that's definitely encouraged. And then as time progresses and you essentially are selling it, you have to know your products really well. So then you get deeper into it just by knowing all of your liquors and knowing the beers really well. And then you get to know like all the reps and the brewers and it's even more normalized. And I feel like there's always people that were having more of a problem than I was. And so it was really hard for me to tell when it kind of became an issue. But I definitely started doing some pretty serious quitting, probably around, or trying to quit around like 2018, I'd say. Um, I found the Holly Whitaker 
hip sobriety, but I couldn't afford it because I couldn't string together money because I was drinking all my tips basically. But I got her reading list, which like led me to Kundalini yoga and Pema Chodron. Mm. And then I was like aware of like the podcast existed, but I wasn't really fully willing to listen to them quite yet. And then I got the this Naked Mind book from Annie Grace. And I um, listened to that and still didn't quit drinking for another couple of years. But I listened to it a couple of times. Like I definitely started to recognize all the places where my cognitive dissonance was sitting. And I think once you realize that it's a problem, but you're still doing it, it takes all the fun out of it. But you keep doing it anyways for a while because it's just so ingrained in all the parts of your life. Yeah, so I was just in this cycle of getting like three days, but I'd feel awful once I drink or then I get to like 10 days and I'd feel better and then I would drink. Sometimes I'd make it all the way to like two weeks, but then there'd be like a big celebration or an event or something that I would use to justify, justify it. But then right as like the pandemic was setting in, all the restaurants started to kind of slow down before everything shut down. And a big part of my income was still table service, even though I was the general manager. But since we were so slow, I kept pushing all my tables onto my servers to make sure that they were getting enough. So I was super duper broke. And I feel like I would have kept drinking, but I ran completely out of money. And then the day that the state shut down was like the happiest day of my life. (laughs) I was so excited that it was just done. I think I had 10 days at that point. And then that next day, I started listening to podcasts and using a sobriety app. And I think those two things, in addition to having the space away from all of the alcohol service, were like what changed everything. And then I think a couple of weeks later, I told my partner and got some like actual accountability. And then I didn't even join Cafe RE until like month four. And I did it as a reward to myself, which is so funny now. Like I should have just joined it immediately, but for whatever reason, I like waited on month four. I was like, I'll join. Congratulations, Stacy. <laughs> you did it. And then I got on there. I was like, man, I could have been using all this stuff since day one. You joined though. You joined. I did. And then, yeah, and it's funny too, because really, because what I found um, recovery happy hour before I found recovery elevator. And so I fully caught up with her and then I joined Recovery Elevator because I was like, maybe she'll she'll be on there. We'll be in the same group and I can be friends with Trisha. But then what happened is I ended up meeting all the people that are in the interviews. And so all those people are real in my life now. The internet recovery world is a really beautiful place. You know, it's funny. I want to draw a parallel with what you mentioned about the restaurant industry and, you know, getting to know the brewers and the sales reps that bring out our, that bring in all the liquor and all of that. I feel like our experience is such a bubble of what we choose to focus on. I, like I said, we share that restaurant industry background. And I remember I was thinking the other day of when I opened up this restaurant here in San Diego, that is a place that is still home to me and the restaurant actually shut down due to COVID, but I really good friends with the owner who was my boss. And, you know, I had great memories and I ended up leaving the industry for many reasons. One of them being, uh, I knew that it was enabling my, my drinking behaviors. But when I was there, it was such a bubble where I remember that status that you're talking about, like 
knowing the brewers in San Diego, then knowing the food critics that would come in to try the food and knowing all of these people that were basically the VIPs of this bubble, of this lifestyle. And then when you shift into not just sobriety, but whatever it is that you shift your energy towards, there is another bubble where there are people there that you want to meet and connect with and be a part of and belong with. So it's funny that sometimes we think it's exclusive to whatever bubble we're currently in, but that feeling of recognition, safety, belonging, it exists anywhere else, including sobriety. So you can just kind of pick that up and transitioning into something healthier. And that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's pretty interesting just that everybody is kind of real now because I joined like Recovery Elevator and I wasn't super active right off the bat, but a few people like we talked about music, just like weird random things on the side. And then I got pulled into like this smaller Marco Polo group that then turned into like a smaller Marco Polo group. And so super organically, I found like my tribe within Cafe RE. Granted, now a couple of them are even a part of that. It's just this weird menandering trail of people that you find. And when everybody is so open, <laughs> it's just, it's really beautiful. You know what, for people that are listening, we are community is called Cafe RE and uh, there are many communities. You know, there is, you know, Holly Whitaker has her own, Laura McCowan, and we want to make sure that people just find their healing and their tribe and their crew, wherever that is. You know, we do have a lot of members come on here, but we also have a lot of listeners who aren't Cafe RE members or don't even know what Cafe RE means. And that's totally fine. I think the underlying message that we always want to make sure that comes across is that there are a ton of communities out there who want to support you, who want to help you, who want to heal with you. So I'm really happy you joined, but I don't know. We're, we're we're just people. You know, I always tell people when I meet them, we just went to Bozeman. I'm just a person and Trisha's also just a person. <laughs> and we're all just people trying to stay sober today, you know, and we're just in it together. Yes, definitely. And uh, I think just the main thing that I wish I would have done years ago in my quitting journey was just to like even reach out online. Like I didn't even really start. Actually, I should back up a little bit. I didn't start in the recovery elevator group. I started in the Annie Grace alcohol experiment group and I tried the free experiment a couple of times, but I couldn't get more than like a couple of days in there. But I stayed in that Facebook group because it's a free one. And just seeing um, all the people repeatedly saying all the things that you feel inside, but sometimes they're too terrified to actually say, really starts to break down that terminal uniqueness and all the things that prevent us from helping ourselves, essentially. And I know a lot of people talk about the Annie Grace book, and if anybody's listening has not listened to this book, I recommend getting the audible version and just putting it in your ears over and over and over and just letting your brain take it in. It might not make sense right away, but eventually you start to break through all those barriers. So I'm still in that group. And what I see over there is a lot of people that are still in like the very beginning stages, whereas over in the RE group, I see that a little bit. But then I also get to see all like the, you know, these superstar warriors who like it to go on all the big trips and all the fun stuff. So it's really neat to see like the wide range. And then you see the people that are in both groups. And then you start to see this mesh of people, this like, it's just such a beautiful web of people to be a part of. Just jump in. Like, if you think that your story is like the craziest one, it's not, I promise. Like, <laughs> everybody's heard everything. Everybody wants to help you. Like, people that are on those platforms are genuinely there just to 
be kind and nice and uplifting. And you can't say that about a lot of places on the internet in all the recovery groups that I've been a part of. That's definitely. And I didn't know that. And I wish that I would have allowed myself that earlier. And even if you're not ready to quit, like right now, you're still just thinking about it. Get in there. (laughs) Just, yeah. I feel like just seeing it over and over and over just really helps your subconscious work through all the things that. A hundred percent. You just have to get out there. Leap in the net will appear. We're over here waiting. And Stacey, I didn't ask you at the beginning, but how old are you? I am almost 35. Okay, perfect. And then, so you did mention that it wasn't until you talked to your partner that you got some real in-person accountability, that you had tried to string days. You had these small stints, three, five, seven, ten. Yeah, I, I would what? only tell I would only tell people that I was drinking with. <laughs> Yeah, I would never tell people that like where it actually mattered. You know what I mean? I'd be like, I'm gonna quit drinking, and they're like, Yeah, you're sure. And then I get like three days together. But you know, but I started like kind of gathering all these tools. Like right before pandemic, I had like joined a gym where you could bring a friend for free, and I talked to a bunch of my other service industry friends to do the same thing. And we kind of all started going to the gym at like midnight to like just do something different and so it was kind of going in that direction before a pandemic just like shut everything down and so I guess that's my other thing is like just start adding those tools in your toolbox way before you think you're gonna I mean because you might not use them right away but like I really feel like over the five years of my like trying to quit but not really seriously doing it enough to get like accountability I was definitely like paying attention to the sober people in my life and picking up little things they were doing and trying to get it in my toolbox. It's all part of your journey. And I have a question. So when did you figure out in your head? So you were gathering tools and trying to quit and learning from other people. And like I said, it's all part of the journey. But do you recall a moment where when you were like, I have a problem, something's going on? It was it was right around when I was 20, 21, when I broke up with my first love and I had my first miscarriage and just like had to figure out how to be an adult by myself and I knew it wasn't right but then I plugged myself into the service industry and was just like this is my life this is what I'm doing and so I shoved it down for years like I think I knew I knew for a long time before I actively like did anything about it and I think I chose to surround myself by people with people who were on that same path because it made it so that I didn't have to think about it. Yeah, it's totally normal to know what we're doing, to know like, oh, I'm medicating, I'm numbing, I'm running away, I'm drinking to cope, you know, that's totally fine. And that's totally normal. So I, I do feel like we like encouraging people to not give themselves a hard time when you, you know, but then you're acting kind of opposing to what you know, I think it is actually part of the journey. Did you have like a strong rock bottom moment or something scary happening around the drink when you started trying or was it just organic? My partner hated it always. Like he's never been a big drinker and we were on different work schedules and it was a pretty big division between us for a long time. And I feel like I almost leaned heavier into drinking just as like, oh, I'll show you type response. Yeah, there's just, there's, there's definitely been some times, like, for instance, I, uh, I went to herbalism school for a couple years and I was used as an, for like the example of all the deficiencies that you would look for in somebody with like nutritional deficiencies. And I was the only one in the class that was a heavy drinker or in the service industry. So like magnesium and essential 
fatty acids and stuff like that. And then they ended up using me as an example for like the final exam. One student uh, does like an intake and I totally volunteered to do it, but I, but I feel like it was kind of an intervention, like this sneaky little intervention where my teachers were like, okay, we're gently going to tell you like all these things will get better. And this, these are the things that are happening. And that really kind of got it in my brain to recognize some of the physiological things that I was doing to myself that I don't think I would have noticed otherwise. So that was one thing. I also got a driving while ability impaired, which is just right below a DUI when I was 28. I had gone home to visit my family in my hometown and I was there for, I think 36 hours and I spent 24 of them in jail. And I hadn't been home in two years. So that was awesome experience that I wouldn't recommend for anybody. But yeah, it was just, yeah. So there's just been like a few small things throughout the time that just solidified that it's not, it wasn't working for me. And I knew that for a while, but I just didn't know how to get out of the service industry, I think was the primary thing that was keeping me linked in. And uh, I hear Paul say all the time, alcoholism, incredibly short memory, which is like Mm -hmm. one of my favorite quotes about that time in my life where you like you wake up in the morning and you're like never again that's awful I can't believe I did that but then by the time five o'clock rolls around your whole brain's on like a completely different path and I was just definitely stuck in that for a really long time I knew yeah it's that cognitive dissonance the thing about that is that it's not that you it's not that you were lying or it's not that you didn't have the willpower. It's none of that. It's just literally the subconscious betraying us every time. And that cycle is so hard to be stuck in. So I'm just really happy that the pandemic and everything worked in your favor. Your routine drastically changed. I mean, the restaurant shut down. You went and cocooned yourself in, like you said. So how was your day to day when like all of March? Because your date is early March. How was that first month for you? I slept for like the first three months. I feel like it's like what I I just slept. I think I saw the sunset maybe like 10 times over the entire spring and summer. I couldn't, I can't even believe how tired I was. It took a really long time for my body to like re-regulate. And I just kind of like treated myself like a sick toddler. I was like, you're crabby. That's okay. You can sit in the crabbiness and you can be on the couch and have snacks go for walks when you're restless, hot baths, hot showers, early bedtimes. And that's just what I did for months. And then I started working again, probably about seven or eight months after that. And I was still really tired for like a couple months after that even. But I'm finally feeling like my whole body's re-regulated. I lost almost like 45 pounds during that time. It didn't drop until probably close to like eight or nine months but I really feel like my body had a lot of rebuilding to do so I'm really thankful that everything in the world was shut down and I had permission from society to sit on my couch and not feel guilty about it yeah giving ourselves those permission slips when everything is quote-unquote normal is harder you know it 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 is so hard for us to allow ourselves to rest but I do feel like it's a very important component about recovery and sobriety, you know, your body does need to heal, your mind needs to heal, we need the rest and our lifestyle. For the most of us, it's a very high stress, fast, busy, go, go, go. So that's amazing that you gave yourself that permission, because sometimes even when we have the space to do it, it's still such a mind 
game for many people because we feel like our worthiness is so attached to achieving or how productive we are. And I'm just really glad that you let yourself rest and that you, I don't know, that your body had the space to do it because it does mean a lot of changes internally. We can't really see it, but there's a lot going on inside that has to happen in order to restore equilibrium and balance. And it's, it's good to hear that you did it. Yeah. So yeah, again, I'm just so thankful for the pandemic. It definitely worked in my favor. It allowed me to have the space to like recognize that um, my job wasn't working because I think I was really unwilling to admit how unhappy that I was. And for like the last like five years of my service industry career, I just kept switching restaurants. Like that was going to change something <laughs> when in fact it was like the entire industry was the issue. So yeah, so I was just thankful to have the space to see that. And it's funny too, because I actually got pulled back in a few months after uh, we shut down and I went back for a week and I was just so mean and awful. And I was like, this is terrible. And my boyfriend was like, yeah, you've been like this for years. But we had that nice little break in the middle where my brain had a chance to reset and wasn't like soaking in a neurotoxin. Oh, I guess I do have one other rock bottom moment. So I was having a really hard time processing all the stress of dealing with a restaurant in pandemic times. And it was a new restaurant to begin with. So we already had like lots of stuff going on. And there's this little restaurant down the street that my friends own that I would stop by and have a couple beers at. And I feel like I would just verbal diarrhea all my stress out on everybody and I was just miserable to be around and nobody liked it and I couldn't recognize on people's faces like when they were done with me like that part of my brain wasn't working anymore to like recognize emotional regulation with people and uh, the owner sat me down and was like you're being really annoying which is like a huge trigger for me because I was an annoying kid so like somebody saying that to me as an adult is like oh like that hurts worse than like a lot of things Mm -hmm. but he was like I don't know if you need to deal with this or not but like if this continues like you're not going to be able to continue coming in here and that was mortifying for me because I'm a service industry person whose like entire reputation depends on like not being an annoying person within restaurants so I think it was probably like another four months until I really, really quit. But I was definitely on the cycle of quitting while that happened. And then on my one year anniversary, I totally took a thank you note to that restaurant for my friend. And I thanked him for being real with me and telling me that my behavior was unacceptable. And that I really appreciated it. And it was um, important that he did that. And I was sorry. What a pretty moment. And, you know, do you think that one of the reasons or have you dug into figuring out why you drank? Like you, you did mention like I was an annoying kid and that terrifies me. Did you use alcohol to kind of camouflage or to change your behavior a bit? Or have you found why you drank in the first place? Yeah, I'm still, still working on, on a lot of that. Um, I definitely, I feel like I found a really supportive group of ladies within this journey and, I think that's a lot of what like year two is going to be about is kind of like digging into that, you know, and like I grew up in a ski resort, but when I moved to Oregon, I kind of found my people (laughs) like I make sense here. Like I definitely found my tribe when I moved here when I was 19. And so I haven't felt like that since I was like a really little kid. 
but yeah it was just like this weird like striking thing that he said to me and I was like well that's awful (laughs) and I feel really bad for my boyfriend too because he's definitely said to me a lot of times that he doesn't appreciate my behavior but I was able to compartmentalize that and like get my defense shield up and be like but you blah 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 all the things but for whatever reason my friend sitting me down and telling me I was annoying was like ugh, (laughs) just hurt me so much I didn't even really hurt it hurts not the right word it just was hit me in a vulnerable spot probably because I didn't have my defender shield up yeah I mean it's okay if it hurt you know I feel like it probably did catch you off guard and alcohol is one of those sneaky substances where we (laughs) there's enough memes about this where you think you look a certain way on the outside when you're drunk but you actually look (laughs) not the way that you think you look you know there comes a point where we all become annoying and sloppy and whatever you want to call it I do think it takes a lot of courage for people to call out what's happening. And that's so cool that, you know, this person talked to you, you had a full circle moment in your one year and you're right, you know, year two and beyond, I think get a little bit deeper in terms of the layers and getting to know our emotional wounds more and getting to know our behaviors more. It's such a learning journey. Do you still get any cravings, Stacey? And if so, how do you cope with them? You know, I really don't. Um, I feel like I've fully broken through my cognitive dissonance, but I'm not so cocky to say that I won't again. So for my new job, I applied for a cooking position, but I am being put in charge of like the alcohol section because I have the most experience of everybody. But it's like a state regulated thing. And it's very much not a restaurant. It's very different from that. But I did find it ironic that that's where I'm headed. So we will see. We will see if there are any triggers. But so far, I've been able to remove all the things that would normally. But I don't think that this is going to be a big issue because it's just a huge, it's basically what it is, is it's a giant dorm building and there's a food court in the bottom and there's like one little booth that has beer and wine. So there's no like mixing cocktails or anything like that. And I'm actually supervising students doing the sales. And so I feel like it's an opportunity to like be really stringent and responsible and strict and really teach people how to serve alcohol safely. And because it's an environment where there's no tips or gratuity, it removes a lot of that commission based stuff that kind of makes alcohol service gross. Like people trying to oversell for tips or fighting to get the best nights and sections and all the things that go along with it. If everybody just gets paid the same amount, And it doesn't matter. And it's also not revenue based or sorry, it's not profit based. It's revenue based. So we're not trying to like gain all of our profit by selling alcohol. It's just one component of this big machine. I think it'll be fine, but we shall see. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to connecting and you letting me know how it goes. I know you're going to do great. And, you know, I feel like when you work in the service industry, that is your life. That's your lifestyle. That's your social life and your friends. What happened to your social life? I know we were in pandemic and nobody was hanging out around anybody, especially at the beginning. But in terms of like actual friendships, did you have any relationship changes? And what happened with, you know, your group of friends? Because I think that that's a big fear for many people entering sobriety. And it's a myth that I kind of like debunking because, of course, we always relationships are always changing in and out of sobriety. But 
a lot of those relationships in the service industry are highly linked to drinking. So what happened to your friend circle, if that's okay for me to ask? Oh, yeah, for sure. So again, so everything shut down. So we were all grounded, essentially, just what we needed. And I didn't really see anybody for almost a year, um, except for the internet, because the internet's like a weird thing. But we did have a big going away party. And I went and I saw everybody. And I just looked really good. And I felt really good. And everybody just kind of did not look like they felt really good. (laughs) And I think like 10 different people came up and were like, I've been seeing your posts are so inspiring because I'm pretty open about it on my Facebook because I feel like, you know, the stigma thing is awful. And so I just try to be really open about it. But I was just surprised by how many of my friends came up and talked to me about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if more of them come along to the other side. Yeah, I think that I think there's a big shift happening. And yeah, and so I choose not to like hang out with them as much as I used to, but mostly that's just a pandemic thing because they're, you know, I'm just trying to limit where I'm going. So yeah, so I don't know if it would have been, if I would have felt more left out if it wasn't like pandemic, like if it was just normal times. I feel like that was something that kept me in it for a while. But I will say that my relationship with my partner is better than it's ever been. And so I feel like a lot of that energy that I was putting into my service industry relationships, I was able to reallocate into relationships that were more worthy or higher up on that list and had been neglected for a while. How do you see your life changing post-pandemic and going out again? You know, if somebody offers you a drink, do you feel nervous about it? I know you're, you said you're public about your sobriety on your Facebook. Is this something that easily you can navigate just going back out there as a sober person? Oh, yeah. So once all the restaurants reopen, I go to all my favorite bars still. And most of them serve non-alcoholic beer that I requested. Like there's been this huge shift in people, but all my favorite bars are where all my favorite cooks are. And so if I want my burger made how I want it, I got to go to them. And I gave myself like a good six to eight months before I attempted that. And I am really happy to find out that I have not been triggered at all in any of those environments. I also use non-alcoholic beer as a tool for myself. And I didn't try it for several months because I didn't want it to be a trigger, but I am happy to report that it doesn't bother me. Not to say it's a tool for everyone, but I definitely am happy about that because I do love my brewing community. And so I've actually been talking to a few of my brewing friends about, you know, once the brew festival part of the world uh, is a thing again, like maybe creating a category for non-alcoholic beers and like peer pressuring a lot of our local breweries into creating local products for the Lambeth Valley, which is the hot valley or sorry, the hop capital of the world. So it's a huge part of our like agriculture too. And so I'm happy to report that none of that has really been bothering me too much. And yeah, so I think, I think it's going to be good. And I just feel so much better every day. I just wake up and I don't feel like garbage first thing. I don't wake up at like three in the morning and worry about all the things my brain decides are important at three in the morning. And so I just feel so much better that I just can't even imagine going back. That is amazing. I love the idea of entering these categories with NA beverages. And of course, I'm really appreciative that you shared that disclaimer. You know, if you're not comfortable with non-alcoholic beers, obviously stay far from them. It's a very personal decision. Uh, I also really enjoy NA beers and I love that movement in itself growing and seeing more options out there for people who aren't just in recovery, but people who 
are really understanding that alcohol isn't really benefiting their body. You know, some people do it for the health reasons and whatever the reason is, I think it's, it's amazing, but that's exciting. And Stacey, I feel like we could talk forever, but we have reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? I usually do butter pecan. What is a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? That joy can be the base emotion. You can just wake up and just joy can just be the, the beginning of the day. And that was never the case for me when I was, my brain is trying to regulate off of depressants every morning. So I'm happy to report so much joy on the side. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I would just say don't quit quitting and be really gentle on yourself. Keep adding tools to your toolbox just don't quit quitting. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line. You may have to say adios to booze if your cab driver knows you really well, but you don't know your cab driver very well. Thank you so much, Stacey, for joining us on the podcast. I can't wait to air this. And I just appreciate you. Thanks for reaching out and sharing your story. Yes. Thank you so much, Adet. Very well, Team Ari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you that change starts with us. If you are waiting for things to change, for people to change, for life to change, you may be waiting for a long time. You may grow bitter and resentful. Recovery is our responsibility. Everything that we wish to see in others needs to start with us. Be the person you wish everyone around you was and see how life can change. We have the strength, the love, the power, and the potential to create different outcomes. The wound that haunts us may not be our doing, but the healing is up to us. I read this quote the other day on Instagram that prompted this outro. It says, I really, really think that the secret to being loved is to love. And the secret to being interesting is being interested. And the secret to having a friend is being a friend. I took a screenshot and saved it. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We have to take the stairs back up. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. Familiar actions.
your thinking.